1: Welcome to anyone that's new Uh, If you've been here more than three times eh, Good to see you But uh, those that are new here for the first time Welcome (laughs) Welcome to have you here And uh, we're we're excited Uh, For those of you online uh, Thanks for tuning in Um, I'm, I'm I'm super excited about this morning, so I'm really glad you guys are here. Um, When I was growing up, one of my favorite shows as a kid had to be Law & Order. How many Law & Order fans here? I don't mean the like the origi- I mean the original one, not the SVU version, that was okay, but but I really liked the the original series. In fact, I might even be dating myself here, but I like the even the original cast. You had you had obviously Lenny Briscoe. Everyone remember Lenny Briscoe, the detective? The same guy who put Baby in the corner. He <laughs> redeemed himself on, on Law and Order, thankfully. But um, I go back to like detective Mike Logan. Remember that Hawhead of Mike Logan and Max? Anyone remember Max? <laughs> No, adam schiff the da he was great i love that character anyway so the the show was as formulaic as all get out as you can imagine right it was uh they, they would have uh, you know really two shows in one the first 30 minutes was all about the, the detectives and how they're they're investigating the crime and then the second half of the show was all about how they prosecuted them right and so these are their stories <laughs> Right? Now we got that sound, right? That iconic sound, right? I just love that sound, right? I just, but every time I hear that sound, I think of one word in particular, and that word is conviction. And, and conviction is, is, a, is a harsh term, right? It's not a, even the word itself is not soft like gentleness or kindness. Conviction has some has a, has a bite to it, has an edge to it, has strength to it. It's, well, dare I say it's a word with conviction, right? It's got some power behind it. And so, in, in John chapter sixteen, Jesus he's telling his disciples that it's good that he's going away, because it, because he's going away, it's going to allow him to send another just like him, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit's got a job, he's got a mission, and that mission is conviction. It's to convict you and I. Now he says he's going to convict three things: sin, righteousness, and judgment, and and it's. Again, you hear that inside, maybe part of you just begins to shrivel up. Part of you gets nervous. It gets anxious at that thought. But the the reality is he explains it, that he's, he's sending the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin because they don't believe of judgment. It's that the enemy, the God of this world, Satan has already been judged. So it's not even to convict you of your own judgment, but he is coming to convict you of this truth of righteousness. And he says, I I want I want the Holy Spirit to convict you of righteousness because I go away. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. We want to look at this idea of, of righteousness and how it defines who we are how this this truth about righteousness could actually begin to control us and determine how we live. And so that's what we want to understand. That's what we want to look at. And uh, so we're going to continue on in our passage here, looking at the armor of God series uh, in, in Ephesians chapter six, verses 13 and 14. So verse 13 says, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to to take up residence inside of each and every one of us who believe in you. And I pray that this morning in particular, he would convict us, that he would do a deep work of conviction in our hearts around this truth of righteousness of what it means of, of the impact and the significance of that truth so that there is a deep, deep understanding in all of our souls and all of our hearts that changes. Well, quite frankly, everything changes, how we see ourselves, how we see you, how we see others, how we live again, father may your spirit do a deep work this morning in your name. We pray. Amen. Well, if, if you're a Bible scholar of any sorts and you, you can name all six pieces of armor, uh, good for you. That's probably better than I could have before I studied this passage. Uh, but if you look at it, there's, there's there's a kind of a two sections here. There's three parts of armor that Paul refers to as having put on and then three parts of armor. He says, take up. And so the, the having put on ones, that's the, the belt of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness and the, the feet that are shod with the gospel of, of peace or the, the sandals of the gospel of peace. And he, he says that we're to having put on, meaning it's already yours. It's already belonging to you. And I think that's interesting because the significance there is you and I don't have to do something, to take ownership. We don't even have to do something to put them on. They're already placed on us. That's just what we wear all the time. But the next three that he talks about, where he refers to is the, the, the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and and the word of the spirit or the sword of the spirit. He says, those are things that you take up each time you're attacked. So again, you see a difference. One is is always present and the others we take up in that moment. And so this truth last week that we looked at was the belt of truth. And again, that's having put on meaning the truth is already there. And we saw that the truth is not subjective. The truth is objective because the truth is the person of Jesus Christ. And there's so much great truth that we could look at so many wonderful things about the gospel that we could, we could examine and we hold to. And Jesus says, if you hold to the truth, it will set you free because the corollary of that is that lies place us in bondage. And so it's critical. It's crucial. It's important that we hold to the truth. And we, we looked at last week, one truth in particular, which is the goodness of God, that he is good. And he's gracious to you all the time. And that, that if we could believe that one truth, that would change everything. It would change how we, how we trust him and how we live and, and how important and powerful that is. Well, this morning now, we want to kind of continue on with that idea of of some more truth and even really the the impact of that that goodness of God and understand this truth about the breastplate of righteousness. Now, now think about the imagery there that Paul's using, because I think it was specific that he uses this idea or this imagery of a breastplate. Think about what a, a breastplate would do. It protects the vital organs of, of the soldier, right? The heart, the lungs, the stomach, the intestines, everything that's crucial that needs protecting is ultimately behind the breastplate. I mean, you could you could take a wound, you know, uh, you know, lose an arm. It's just a flesh wound. <laughs> someone got that. Right. I don't know if you're saved or not, but uh, nonetheless, so that's I use the joke. So what does that say about me? But but, you know, all the vital organs are here. And so that's what the breastplate is protecting here. And I think that's what he's talking about with righteousness is this truth of righteousness is so crucial because it's going to protect all that's vital about who we are. So let's, let's start by defining that term righteousness. Cause I don't, I don't know if we under, if we've ever taken the time to define it, you know, typically it's, it's only used, you know, if you're reading a scripture verse, we don't tend to use it in our everyday, you know, usage of language, unless you're a surfer, in which case that, that wave was righteous, but we don't really know what that means. Right? So let's, let's try to understand the significance and define righteousness. So to start, I want to look at Romans chapter one and verse 16 and 17. And Paul here, he's writing as a, as an introduction to this this letter to the Romans. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, to the Gentiles, to the whole world for in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous man shall live by faith. What I want you to see in this verse here is the centrality of righteousness in the gospel. That it's, it starts with, with, with righteousness. It's all about the righteousness that God has revealed. That's at the heart of the gospel. And meaning if we, if we don't understand the, the, the power and the significance of this righteousness, then we're missing the heart of the gospel of what God intends. So let's define righteousness. Every time you see the word justify or justification, by the way, in the Bible, it's referring to righteousness. It's the same Greek word in in, uh, in, at the root of it. And so righteousness simply means to justify or to be in right standing or to be approved or to be accepted. But the one that I might I might like the most is a very simple one. And it's it simply means to be made right. Think about that. To be made right. Doesn't that that truth begin to just sort of bring some peace and some calmness to your soul right away? This knowledge that you've been made right. And and I want us to understand how it happened. Because if if you're looking at yourself in any way, you're going to struggle with this truth. But it's not about you and I. It's all about what Jesus has done. So in Second in Corinthians 521, Paul writes that God, he made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that you and I would become the very righteousness of God as righteous as he is. Well, let's, let's understand that. Let me illustrate to you this way. Imagine, imagine I have two glasses and one glass is pure H2O, pure water. It's just, it's beautiful. It's refreshing. It's wonderful on a hot day. And in my other hand, I've got another glass and that is a glass of arsenic, a glass of poison. And, and what I do is I take, I take the arsenic, the poison, and I pour it into the, the pure water. What have I made the pure water? I've made it poison. And now that pure, wonderful water is death. And that's exactly what happened to you and I, that Jesus who knew no sin, he's that pure water. He's clean and he's wonderful and everything that's right. And you and I are poison. We were full of sin and we were death and we were everything that was wrong. And what God does is, is he more than just forgives you and I, he baptized us into Christ. He places us into Jesus Christ. He essentially takes you and I, the poison and pours us into Jesus. And it was not just your sins, but your very presence in Jesus on the cross that made him sin. And so He become sin on our behalf. And then he was crucified and we were crucified with him and he was buried and we were buried with him. And then he rose again And we rose with him, but now as a brand new creation, born again, someone new, but now we're made in the likeness of God. We've been made right. His righteousness has been given to you and I as a gift. And that's what makes us righteous. What Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's really important that we understand. It's not what we do. In fact, Paul hammers that message home repeatedly over and over again, almost in every epistle he writes. Could it be that he understood the battle and the struggle we would have to believe that this gospel is that good that you can never qualify or earn a righteousness, but yet it's given to you as a gift. Well, he writes in Romans 30 Romans three and verse 20 and 21. He says, by the works of the law, by your effort, by your, by your performance, by your behavior, by your good choices, no flesh, no person will be justified. There's that word again. We'll be made righteous in God's sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law wasn't there to make us right. The law was simply to show you how wrong you were, but now verse 21, but now and I love that. It's in this moment, but now apart from the law, apart from your works, apart from your performance and what you do and your failures, the very righteousness of God has been manifested. It's shown up being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so we have to understand this this righteousness that you and I possess, it's simply not by works. Everyone say not by works. <laughs> Instead, it's by faith in what Jesus has done. Everyone say, by faith in what Jesus has done. By faith in what Jesus has done. Isn't that good news? It's not about you. It's not about your failures. It's not about your successes. It's not about what you've accomplished. It's all about what Jesus has done. And, and that's why this truth matters so much. I think that's why Paul calls it the breastplate of righteousness. It's similar to how the breastplate would protect the vital organs of that Roman soldier. This truth protects the very core of who you are because the enemy, when he attacks us, most often he will attack your identity. He will specifically, he will attack your, your acceptance and your worth and the value in which you, you perceive yourself to have. And so we have all these these doubts and all these questions. Am I too much? Am I am I not enough? Do I have do I have what it takes to be worthy of acceptance and love? Have I failed too much? Is my is my sin too big? Am I am I just too messy? Am I am I too controlling? Am I too passive? Am I, am I too much, too much much anxiety? Am I, am I too much of a burden on people? Do I struggle with sin and addiction too much? We have all these questions and in the flesh, our enemy screams. Yes. Yes. You'll never be enough. You'll never be loved. You'll never have value unless you work harder, unless you got your life sorted out, unless you did more and more and more. And sadly, some of our friends and family might even agree. You're just not seemingly pulling enough of pulling your weight. You got, you got to, got to accomplish more. You got to overcome this struggle and overcome that struggle. And, and, and we're just getting this cycle. But, but Jesus, he, he looks you right in the eyes and he gets, gets real close. So close that you can, you can see the wrinkles in his face. And he just smiles and he says, you're, you're, you're not too much for me. You're not too much of a mess for me. Yeah. You struggle. I know it. And you're going to continue to struggle. I, I know that too. And, and you've got all kinds of guilt and shame. And I, I, I get all that. Listen, I know everything about you and I love you and I accept you. And I embrace you because I've made you right. Despite what our enemy says, Listen to me. I've made you pure. I've made you good. And you'll, you'll never be too much of a mess for me. That's this truth of righteousness. And, and it's, not, it's not a new, it's not new to the church even. I mean, again, it's, it's right here in the original writings of the apostles. It got lost somewhere along the way. And about 500 years ago, we had the, the, the reformation. And, and that's what partly the Reformation was all about, was a righteousness not based on works, but by faith alone. And it's ever since then, it's been a core tenet of what we believe. And, and I bet you if you were to ask Christians on a theological exam, is that true? Most of them would check yes, from a knowledge perspective. But in, in meeting with Christians from all over and talking with them, their experience would say something else. Their their experience would say that they're still striving. They're still working and struggling to improve upon, to gain more of, or to either maintain even that gift that God's given to them. And and the reason for that, I believe, is because our enemy has created such a deception around this powerful truth. Now, what's a deception? Deception. A deception is much more than just a lie. A, a lie, you see it and you recognize it. So when someone says country music is good, you go, that's a lie from the pit of hell, right? So you know that up front, <laughs> right? It's clear and obvious. That one you don't, you don't mess around with, right? But a deception, a deception kind of, it, it sounds good. It's, it's basically a lie wrapped up in truth. And so you don't notice it. It's not as obvious in our, our enemy, he trades in deceptions. Think about back in the garden, right? Where he deceived Eve, where he, he convinced her, he tricked her into thinking something else. But she, he, he put a twist on the truth. And that's what I see people talking about when it comes to this truth of righteousness. So I want to share some of the common deceptions that I've encountered with, with people, in part so you know what I'm not saying. Because maybe maybe as I'm talking about righteousness and and maybe as I'm saying God's made you right, you're going mm-hmm, and you're believing one of these deceptions. So we want to we want you want to get rid of these deceptions, blow them up. And the first deception is that righteousness comes through forgiveness. Now, a lot of people have believed this one where this idea that as I'm forgiven, then I become righteous. I believe this one as a kid. And, and so I kind of compare it to like a, a giant blackboard, right? Where, where throughout the day, as you're going along, every time you would sin, then, then there was Jesus or an angel, or if you had a lot of sins, maybe a team of angels kind of recording all of your sins on the blackboard as you went through the day. And then at the end of the day, when you're going, when you're about to fall asleep, that's when you say your prayers and you look back on your day and you say, Lord, you know, I screwed up. Right, So for me, I had a little sister, so sorry, Lord, for teasing her at 9 o'clock, at 9.04, 9.07, 9.08, and 9.08, and 9.08. And, and I'm, you know, throughout the day, I'm sorry for hitting her and, and making fun of her and all that. And, and so I'd you know, list all my sins, and every time I'd, I'd, I'd confess that sin, he would wipe that sin off the board, and by the end of it, you would have a clean blank bo- blackboard again, and you're back to righteousness. Which, by the, reason, by the way, was the reason that you had to keep your account short. Because my thinking was that that as a believer, if I had anything on the board, I wasn't righteous anymore. So how do I get into heaven? So I came up with five minute grace. So here's what five minute grace was. After I die as a believer, I had five minutes with Jesus in front of my blackboard to confess all the sins, wipe them off, and I could sneak into heaven. Which again, why you want to keep your account short, because if you have 10 minutes worth of sin on your board, Eldon, you're in trouble, (laughs) right? So you got to get rid of them. And and so that's why you every day you keep your account short. You have five minutes. Now, if you're not a believer, sorry, you don't get five minute grace. This may surprise you, but that's not in the Bible. I was shocked to find that as I grew up, but it's not actually biblical because here's the truth. Being forgiven wasn't what made you righteous. Forgiveness takes away your sin. It takes away the negative, but it doesn't give you a positive. It doesn't actually bestow anything of righteousness to you. That was done on the cross where, where Jesus took the old sinful you and crucified and buried that person and made you a brand new person. You're not the sinner that what you were born when you arrived here on planet earth. You're now a saint a holy one, someone entirely different in the core. And that's who he's made right. That's who he's made pure. And and that leads us into the next deception, the deception that God sees me through a filter or, or he doesn't see me. He sees Christ in me, or he just sees me as if I'm righteous. This is the idea basically where, where he knows you're not, but he just pretends you are. He just, he doesn't quite see you, you know, the cross or Jesus is in front of you and it's filtering out all the bad parts of you, but really at the core of it, he doesn't see you. It sounds like he's playing a game where he's just playing a game of deceiving himself to let you and I into the family, to let you and I into heaven. But think about it. This is the God who knows everything about you, Who, who knows the number of hairs on your head, he knows all the things that you've done, all the things that have been done to you, all the things that you're going to do. But even more personally, he knows all the thoughts that you've had or having and will ever have. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he doesn't just look at you as if you're righteous, because this, that little phrase, as if you're righteous, what does that imply? That you're not actually righteous. But the glory of this truth Is he's made you righteous Look what, look what it says in Romans five nineteen. For through the one man's disobedience Talking about Adam The many were made sinners so Because of Adam's sin in the garden That's what made you and I sinners But even so Contrasting it with the work of Jesus The obedience of the one Who's the one? Say it out loud Jesus. Jesus Christ Because of what he did on the cross The many You and me Will be made righteous And that's not talking about a future thing. It's talking about the result. If this, then that, and because you and I are in Jesus because of what he's done, you and I have been made righteous. And that made, I think is so powerful because here's the next deception. The next deception is it's just, it's a positional truth. I've heard this so many ways that God declares that you're righteous. Which means he's spoken it, but he's just, you know, giving you a title. But nothing's fundamentally changed, but who you are or or this idea that it's an imputed righteousness where it's it's held in an account for yours and you're in heaven. It's a trust there for you where it's it's held there, but it's waiting until you get there. And, and they even get that from the idea that Abraham was imputed righteousness. Here's the difference between you and me and Abraham was Abraham was before the cross. Abraham was before what Jesus had accomplished. And so it was waiting. And so it was, yes, imputed or credited to Abraham. But you and I have something even better. You and I have something what the writer of Hebrews says that all these great men and women of God could look forward to, but never actually tasted the way you and I have. We've been actually made righteous. That word made, by the way, in, in Romans 5.19 it talks about being made sinners. And the word made means constituted. Think about it. Were you, were you just a positionally a sinner before you knew Jesus? Was it just like a, a term that God used, but you weren't actually a sinner? No, you, you were a sinner. Before you knew Jesus, you were absolutely sinful through and through. But then something changed. And God made, same word, Constituted from the very core of your being out, he has made you right. He's made you justified and righteous and accepted and approved and holy and worthy. He's made you that way. That's who you are. So it's more than a positional truth. It's more than a declaration. It's an actual truth. It's actually who you are. And it's not something you have to wait for. Because here's the other one I hear often. It's a, it's a future, but not present righteousness that, that we're, we're still sinners here on earth, but when you and I get to heaven, then, then we'll be righteous and we'll get in and everything will be okay. Well, let me, let me illustrate why that truth lacks any kind of power, any kind of wisdom to it. Think about it. If, if as a believer, I'm, I'm in Jesus and I'm saved and I'm going to heaven after I die. In the meantime, though, I'm still a sinner. If that's true, suppose I leave here, this, this after church, and I'm, I'm way home. I get run off the road by a, by a dump truck. You know, he cuts me off and sends me into a light pole. I hit the light pole. I die instantly. But as a believer, where do I go? I go to heaven. And now I'm made righteous, and I get it go in, and everything's okay. If that's the case, what was it about a dump truck running me off the road that made me righteous? That Jesus couldn't do on the cross. You see, what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. It's done. He's the one that's already done it all. He's made you righteous. Again, Romans 321. But now, right now, we've been made righteous. Apart from the law, apart from your works, it's not about you and your performance. It's about what Jesus has accomplished. And if we can begin to let this righteousness of who you are, if we can believe it, if we can hold on to it, it, it literally changes everything. First thing, what it does is it begins to actually, begins to control how we live. In, in Romans 6 and 20, Paul says that we're, present, we're to present your members, present yourselves as slaves of righteousness resulting in sanctification. This idea here that that righteousness can actually begin to control us. It can actually begin to to tell us how do we live and what are the choices we make. For example... um, you know nowadays there's so much stuff that you uh, on you know for entertainment wise streaming that basically you you get an account and a password and a login and that's how you you know log in on your computers or on your TVs and so forth and you can watch you know Netflix or Sportsnet or or all kinds of things right and and one of the things that these streaming providers are finding is that one person can log in or purchase the subscription and then share it with two or three of his friends and so now one person is buying um, the package, but, but sharing across multiple households. And, and so now the question is, well, do I do that or not? And, and I can look at it and say, well, you know, balancing is victim is crime and they get enough money. And, and you know, we'll, we'll go in together and I don't watch it that much. And There's all kinds of reasons and rationale we may or might, may not do it. But to me, the way I look at it and I say, well, that's not who I am. Because to do that would be would to steal. And that's not my nature anymore. It's not my nature to, to rob and to steal because I'm now a righteous person in Jesus. And so I'm not doing it because of, you know, it's the it's the law to follow. Or I'm not doing it because I, I'm trying to impress anyone. I'm doing it because it's not who I am. And so righteousness can begin to, to control us because we can begin to see who we are and who we're not. But I think this is such a powerful truth of the impact of righteousness. And it's in Isaiah 32 and verse 17. It says the effect or the result of righteousness will be peace. And that result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. Another translation says it will be um, confidence. So it says peace and quietness or rest and confidence. How many, how many people here could, could use with some, some rest and some peace and some quietness and confidence in life. Anyone? Yeah. That's, that's what this truth of, of righteousness provides us because what, what righteous, when you begin to see and understand that your value and your worth is wrapped up in the righteousness that God's given to you as a gift, when you can begin to embrace that and accept that you discover that you have nothing left to prove you you have nothing left to earn, to achieve, to accomplish. You have no one left to impress because you're already good. You're already complete in Christ. So turn to your neighbor and tell him, I have nothing to prove because God's made me righteous. Have nothing to prove nothing to prove to them, to other people, But most importantly, you have nothing to prove to yourself. You don't have to earn this anymore. It's been accomplished. And if we can begin to embrace that, if we can begin to believe it, and it's so hard to believe because the gift is so massive and I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it in the least bit. But that's why it's called grace. It's, it's, it's a gift that we did not earn. And, and some people, some people fear that if we can, if we embrace this truth, that will lead to passivity. That suddenly you're like, well, then there's nothing to do. If I got nothing to prove and I, then I'm, why bother? Why bother showing up? Why bother? Do I have to help out here and there and so forth? But the exact opposite happens. See, when you discover you have nothing to prove, then you can actually begin to risk because you've got nothing to lose. And I think that's what makes us as the church, the most dangerous entity on this planet, because we're not trying to gain approval from anyone anymore, or we don't need to at least instead. Now what we can do is we can risk failure. We can, we can risk all kinds of things because of who we are in Jesus. See, when I when I left engineering to, to go into ministry and to start counseling people, I'm, I remember having a conversation with God about the idea of that. And in engineering, that's what I grew up with. That's what I was trained with. That's what I was comfortable with. I loved it. And, and I said to God, but God, if I if I go into ministry, and if I go into counseling people, I'm now meeting with people. And if you understand engineers, <laughs> engineers are not people, people. Right there. We don't, we don't do well with, with other people. You know, we do well with computers and robots and and calculus, but not people. And now I'm suddenly going to be a counselor and I'm going to meet with people one-on-one and I'm going to, I'm going to listen to them as they're sharing their struggles or their, their past traumas. And and I'm going to offer them a word of counsel and encouragement. That's terrifying. And so I said, God, but, but what if I fail? What if I fail to accurately portray your word? What if I fail to accurately tell them what you want to say to them in that moment? What if I fail? You know what he said to me? He says, it's not if it's when. Not comforting words. (laughs) Not at all. And so I began to feel more terror, more weight, more pressure, because there's a big part of me that says I got to be perfect. I got to be perfect. Because if I'm a perfect, then I can answer Shame. And so I struggled and I said, but God, but what if I fail? He says, but when you fail, the question is this, are you still right? Are you still righteous? Are you still good enough? And the answer is yes, it is. And so he says, go. And so it's a giant risk. It's a gamble. I mean, think about it. Here I am. You you have no idea how nervous I am about this morning. Because I'm trying to convince you guys through the Holy Spirit that you are as righteous as Jesus is. Done deal. Finished product. Complete in Christ. Doesn't matter about your past. Doesn't matter about your failures. Doesn't matter about your sins. You are right in Jesus. Who's worthy to share such an awesome message? And all I want to do is I want to shake each and every one of you till you get it. (laughs) I've tried that with Greg. It didn't work. (laughs) It was cathartic. (laughs) But um, but I I want you to see it. It's why I left engineering so that, that I could tell as many people as I could that God offers you a gift. That you don't have to be under shame and his guilt and his condemnation anymore. The question is, will we listen to him? So as I thought about God, how do I, how do I convince people other than shaking them? He reminded me of the, of the story of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that story in Matthew 17, where, where Jesus, he takes his uh, James and John and Peter, and, and he goes up this mountain and just, just the four of them. And while he's there, everything, everything changes, but his appearance, he begins to just Glow and, and this these, these rose, everything is pure and white, and it's like almost like, like Peter, James, and John see Jesus for who he really is, more than just this man. And not only did they see Jesus transfigured, but suddenly Moses and Elijah show up. Moses is the representative of the law. And Elijah is the representative of the prophets. The law and the prophets are there beside Jesus. And and Peter is like, again, it's Peter. So he's the first one to talk. He's like, this is amazing. Jesus, like, you know what? I don't want to ever leave. We're, We're moving in here. And you say the word and I'm building three tabernacles. You get your own houses and we'll just stay here. I never want to leave. Can you imagine that scene? How powerful and how beautiful that would have been. Well, right after finishing, saying that God speaks and he, and he says to the disciples, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I think about it. He's got, he's got the law. He's got the prophets and we got Jesus. And he's basically saying, don't listen to the law. Don't listen to the prophets. Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. You see, too many of us are are like like a like a like the bride, like this the this wife who is getting ready to go on a date with her husband. And so she's she's getting ready, and she's looking in the mirror and doing her hair and makeup and making sure she's got the right outfit outfit. And she's on outfit number seven. Well, technically it's five because she tried on two again. But you know, it's it's just she's going through and she's doing everything she can, and she's looking. And what does she see in the mirror? All the flaws all the wrinkles and the crow feet and the baggy eyes and the makeup is not quite right. And that the dress doesn't fit as well as it used to anymore. And all she's focused in on looking in that mirror, seeing herself is her perceived flaws and their shortcomings and the mess that she feels she is. And the whole time to her side is her husband. And he's trying to tell her something, but she can't hear him because all she sees is herself in the mirror. And that's what happened. We become obsessed with what we see in a mirror. And yet the mirror is not even an accurate mirror. It's one of those, those funny, funny house, fun house mirrors where it distorts how you really are. But that's what we're obsessed with. And, and God's saying, listen to my son. Listen to me. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Don't listen to your 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 performance, don't listen to your past, don't listen to your your failures or your addictions or your, your struggles. Listen, listen to us. Look away from the mirror and look at me. And, and let me tell you who you are. Let me affirm to who you are. Let me, let me tell you about what I accomplished on the cross. Let me tell you how I've made you right. And I'm I'm not oblivious to your struggles. I'm not oblivious to those sins. I get it. They're just not bigger than me. They're not bigger than what I've what I've accomplished. And what I've accomplished is finished. You are today one hundred percent righteous. You're never going to get any more. You're never going to get any less, because of the righteousness that you've been given is my righteousness. Will you accept? Will you acknowledge this this protection, this breastplate of righteousness that God's given to us? And in doing so, in accepting this gift from God, that God more than sees you, more than declares, more than imputes, he's made you righteous. The application and the power of this truth is to then accept yourself. To then be able to look at back in that mirror and say, I see these flaws, I see these shortcomings, I see the mistakes I keep making, the, the, the dumb choices, and how I fail this, and how I get angry too quickly, and I fail to trust, and, and I forget about the goodness of God, and yet, but God, you've made me right, and therefore I could accept myself as I am, with all these perceived flaws and shortcomings, and embrace this truth. And in doing so, allow righteousness to provide that peace, that confidence, that that rest, that quietness in our souls. Because I got nothing to prove to others and to myself or to God. I can just enjoy who he's made me to be. And allow that righteousness to begin to control the choices I make where I now can make healthy choices because that's in line with my character, not making healthy choices, hoping to improve my character. My hope is that that God will convict you of that. Let's pray. Father God. So many of your truths are so big. They're so massive for our finite minds to understand it. And no wonder you send your Holy spirit to convict us for those moments when we're looking into that mirror and we're just seeing our flaws and seeing our shortcomings, we're seeing all our mistakes. You're right there to remind us over and over again. That's not who we are. We're not defined by our failures. We're not defined by our past. We're not defined by what others have done to us. We're defined by what Jesus has accomplished on that cross where he made us today. The very righteousness of God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, you would convict us, and convince us of that truth in such a powerful way that we would risk it, that we would risk that it's true and allow, allow it to impact how we see ourselves and others. We thank you for this wonderful gift. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.